Corinthians. As we continue our series through this this book, we're in chapter 3, taking a little bit of a slower pace than we normally do. We're in chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 23. So the whole chapter this morning, we'll make it through all 23 verses. It's on page 953. Let's go to the Lord's Prayer. Heavenly Father, you are our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you have revealed yourself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, you've revealed yourself in creation through through general revelation. And Father, you've revealed yourself in your written word, your special revelation to us, Father. We ask that as we open up your word this morning, that you would give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit so that we can see your truth. We ask that we would be able to understand this passage, so show us the, the true meaning of these verses. And then also, Father, we ask for an application that we would... Take what you have, have given us, have revealed to us, and then apply it to how we live from day to day so we can more fully be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in, his son's, in our son, your son's name. Amen. Alex had been with his company for seven years, and he came to the point of realizing that it was time to move on. When he had started working seven years ago, it was a good fit. He, he enjoyed it. It was a challenge. He enjoyed the people he worked with. He got along great with his boss. The, the benefits were, were competitive. But things had changed. After four years, he had been promoted. and At that time, he got a new supervisor. And this new supervisor had a habit of hovering around his desk without saying anything. And he didn't like that. And then the work stopped being as as challenging. The the benefits, which were originally competitive, began to dwindle every year. And then he actually received a pay decrease. And it wasn't just him, it was across the board. Everybody received it. And he thought it was due to the fact that the company just wasn't doing very well. They were struggling financially. And then finally, one day at lunch, one of his, his best friends at work told him that he was leaving. And and he had taken another position and that he wasn't going to be sticking around any longer. And that was it for Alex. That was kind of the final straw. He decided it was time for him to move on too. It just didn't make any sense for him to stay where he was at. He didn't need a job that was just going to hold him back professionally. He knew that there wasn't a future for him at his current job. So it was time to move on. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 23, Paul tells the believers in Corinth it's time to move on. Not from their job, but from spiritual immaturity, from worldliness. This is the same topic he's been preaching on and teaching on from from chapter 1. Now he does tackle a couple of side topics in this passage, but the main thrust is is moving on and and moving on away from the, the worldliness that they've been practicing. But by the time we get to the end, we're going to ask us to, ourselves a few questions in the application section. Is there anything that we need to move on from? Is there anything in our life, in our practice, in our walk with Christ, 
that we need to move on from. So let's read the chapter. This is verses 1 through 23. And Paul writes this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. But while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Chapter 3 starts with Paul telling them, you're still worldly. Brothers, they are Christians. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. So these first few verses are Paul exposing their continued worldliness. He said, when I was with you, remember Paul was with them for a year and a half, planting the church, establishing the church, teaching them, getting things started in Corinth. Uh, he brought them the, the basics when they were there. They were, they were raw Christians. They were brand new believers, first century believers, first generation believers. And they were still very much worldly or of the flesh. That's what that means. And the fact that they were raw infants uh, in Christ when Paul first was there and was teaching them really isn't surprising. That, that's not the anomaly here. That's not a big deal. In fact, we would expect that coming out of that pagan, idolatrous, sexually immoral culture, brand new to the faith, sure, they're going to be raw. It takes time to unlearn worldliness. Because they're brand new believers, Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food. You were not ready for it. Paul's saying, when I was with you, I taught you the basics of the faith. 
I, I was still on square one of, of the game board. We weren't anywhere near you know, halfway or, or the finish line. We were just right at the beginning. So we can imagine this as kind of like a John 3.16 faith, John 3.16 teaching. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That, that's a good, solid faith message, but it is also the beginning. It's simple. But it's the beginning. So thing, things we teach at Vacation Bible School, we've got a Vacation Bible School every year. When we bring students in and we teach them things, that's kind of the same thing that's going on here. We give them the basics of the faith. We give them kind of a John 3.16 teaching, and we don't go into too much depth. But then here comes the rebuke. And even now, you are not yet ready. So Paul's saying, I get it when I first was there. I understand that you were a raw Christian then, but now, this many years later, you're, you're, you're still over here? You, you're not ready for the adult Sunday school class. You're, you're still in VBS. How, how is it that you've not progressed? Verses 3 and 4, for you are still of the flesh. Instead of thinking like Christians, instead of passing everything through that filter of being in Christ, instead they're just being driven by worldly impulses and desires. They're, they're, they're using worldly criteria to evaluate and, and judge and make, make, uh, make calls on who the best teacher is and then attaching themselves to that person. You're still of the flesh. And then he gives the example. You're still dividing over the teachers. I'm for Paul, not for Apollos. I'm for Apollos, not for Paul. Oh yeah, well I'm for neither Paul nor Apollos. I'm for Peter. He says, You're, that's, that's worldly. And we can almost imagine Paul shaking his head and saying, okay, alright, let me explain this to you. And then that's what he's doing in verse 5. He's now correcting their view of these teachers that they were lifting up. So verse 5 starts with these questions. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Well, they're not contestants on a game show called Who's the Best Teacher? That's, that's not what you should be, should be doing. They're not celebrities to be, to be judged and evaluated based on how persuasive or powerful or fervent in spirit or how, uh, how they can work a crowd or get a response. So that you said, no, that's, that's not it. They are servants. Not superstars. Servants through whom you believe. So if we have some raw Christians in Corinth and they're hearing this teaching, remember servants were kind of on the, on the lower end of the socioeconomic you know, scale there. And so Paul's saying, look, these guys you've been lifting up and elevating and saying, I follow, they're just servants. They're down here. And I would imagine that the more worldly the believer was, the more offense they took at that statement. The more wrapped up in, in worldliness they were, the, the more of a, a deflating blow this would have been to them. Because they didn't want to follow a servant. They wanted to follow a winner. They, they wanted to follow a strong leader, not a servant. As the Lord assigned to each. The NIV says, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. So Paul and Apollos were servants of the Lord, and each has been given a different assignment. And then in verse 6, we see those assignments. 
Apollos watered, Paul planted, God gave the growth. So Paul planted. He was the founding pastor at Corinth. He was the one to establish the church. That's where we kind of get the term church planting. We get it from this illustration of Paul planting and Apollos watering. So Apollos watered. He came later. After Paul had, as we're going to see, laid the foundation or planted the seed, then came Apollos. And he watered. He gave additional teaching. He built on that foundation. So we can be sure that each man was particularly created, prepared, equipped, and gifted by God for their unique ministry. God knows what he is doing. And so he is assigning the task of planting to Paul and of watering to Apollos. Verse 7. Neither Paul nor Apollos can take credit or catch any of the glory for what God is doing. Paul is very specific Two or three times, maybe even, he's referencing God. God, God's the one who does it. God's the one who does it. God's the one who does it. Not these guys. God's the one who does it. He's the one who provides the growth. And his point is this. These teachers, Paul and Apollos, Cephas, they're not to be followed like rock stars. They're they're not to be um, idolized like that. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. Both of them are engaging in the, in the same task. They're both working to building, uh, to, towards building up God's church. They're on the same team. They're not two independent ministries. They're not um, uh, competing against one another. They're, they're, they're not um, trying to see who can get the most followers. They themselves would say, no way, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But yet that's how the believers were treating them. They're not to be lifted up as as greater or better than one another. And then he says, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So how well they carried out their individual assignments. Paul will be based on his, evaluated on his work as a planter, and Apollos will be evaluated on his work as a waterer. As they carried out their individual assignments as a servant of God not according to how well they did by worldly standards. They're not going to be evaluated by how big the church was, or if if the people left the service feeling uplifted, or entertained, or uh, what the annual revenue of, of the church in Corinth was, or how many of the social elite in the Corinthian community happened to, to do pop-ins and, and stop by and, and visit their church or even become a member of it. No, that's not it. That's how the world measures success. That's not how the church measures it. The servants of God are not judged according to worldly measures of success. If you're wondering what the, the number one question I get asked when I meet somebody is, it's this. And when, when I meet somebody like an unbeliever and we go through the normal, you know, where are you from, what do you do, when they hear me say, oh, I'm the pastor at Peace Community Church in Frankfort, Illinois, number one question that follows. Once in a while, something else, but vast majority, 90, 95%, they, say, they hear me say, I'm a pastor at Peace Community Church from Frankfort, Illinois. The question is this. Oh, how big is your church? Number one question. And my answer is the same thing. It's not my church. It belongs to Jesus Christ. I'm just serving there. And that's usually the end of the conversation. They, they don't really want to talk about Jesus. But that's how the world views success. They were waiting for that number so they can assign value and worth and, and see if you're important or not, 
or if you're somebody to be dismissed and, and not really that important. Worldly standards. It's the number one question. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. Same team, all working for God. And then these two illustrations. So Paul's just finished saying, okay, here's who we are, servants, and here's who you are, who you are. The, you are a uh, uh, field. You, you are God's field, and you are God's building. So the first one is the illustration he's just been working off of in 5 through 9. The next one is, is 10 through 15, the building illustration. So the 10 through 15, God will judge his servants, parentheses, not you. So let's keep 10 through 15 in mind. And, and it's, it's extremely helpful to see this passage in context because it's very easy to rip 10 through 15 out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and say, oh, this is all about uh, you personally and how you need to do really well and watch out because you're going to be burned with fire if you don't do things right or enough. Or, okay, no. Let's look at it in context. This is Paul explaining who these speakers and teachers are. Paul, Apollos, Peter. They're servants. And then this section is how those servants are going to be evaluated by God correctly at the right time and not by you, the believers in Corinth. You, you all should not be evaluating any of us and assigning value to us and following after us. The evaluation that these men will receive is going to come from God. So that's what this section is all about. Paul compares himself to a skillful master builder. So we're going off the, the building illustration. According to the grace of God given to me, it was not by his own strength, it was all God. I laid a foundation. So Paul laid a foundation. Paul was not the foundation. Paul laid a foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ. That's what verse 11 tells us. There is no foundation other than Jesus Christ, the gospel, the teachings of Jesus, the truth of God. And then someone else, Apollos, is building on it. So Paul says, oh, don't worry, I'll be held accountable. Apollos will be held accountable. Peter will be held accountable. Therefore, the believers in Corinth should not concern themselves with evaluating the work of the servants that God has put in place. They should not be judging them, especially from a worldly perspective. The, the believers in Corinth should have uh, no business, nothing to do with judging these people. Number one, because they are raw, worldly believers, they are not spiritually mature enough to be evaluating the work of the Apostle Paul and passing judgment on him. They're just not. They can't do that. They're not qualified. Number two, the nature of the work and these teachers and the, and the leaders in the church is such that it cannot be evaluated until everything's said and done. We're, we're going to see in just a minute. He talks about the day when Christ returns. There is no way to properly evaluate the, the breadth and scope of the work that they're doing in a snapshot taken one particular day. Because everything they're doing as a, as a leader and teacher and preacher and as somebody who has any kind of influence or spiritual um, weight uh, in the church and to God's church, that work carries on and echoes down through generations for a long time. I can distinctly remember teaching from teachers 20 years ago, 
I, I can still picture them and hear them in my mind because they made an impact on me. I, I can still vividly remember reading something that, that significantly impacted or, or changed my understanding of, of one of these doctrines of scriptures. And guess what? Then that works out in how I preach those doctrines in scripture. Okay? Years ago, decades, it's still impacting the church. Think about what you've been taught by your parents or by spiritual, influential people in your life. It's still impacting you today. And then you teach your children and they teach their children. There is no way we can be evaluating the work of one of these guys until the day because of the scope and the breadth of it. And then finally, number three, God will hold these teachers accountable and evaluate them perfectly. We cannot do that. Neither neither can these raw Christians. They definitely cannot do that. So this is what Paul means by, look, God will take care of the judging and evaluating, not you, and not now. Verse 11, there is no other foundation for a true faithful church other than Jesus Christ. If you have a church, we'll put that in air quotes, if you have a church built on anything other than Jesus Christ, you don't have a church. It's, it's not really a church. Real simple rule. No church, no Jesus. Or excuse me, no Jesus, no church. They both work. No Jesus, no church. So then Paul goes into specifics in 12 through 15 about the work of, of church leaders and teachers. So those building on the foundation are those leading, teaching, preaching. Once the foundation has been laid, then everyone else is building upon that, building up the church, any local church. In this particular case, Paul laid the foundation, Apollos is building upon it, and others. As God's servants serve the church, they are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Every time someone builds upon it through teaching or counseling or um, uh, making directional decisions or models a certain behavior or even has a, a spiritual conversation with someone, anything that is impacting the local church and local believers, they are building upon it with materials, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. They represent the nature and the quality of the type of building that's going on in in the church. So gold, silver, precious stones, these are good things, true things, pure things, righteous things, things that are pleasing to God, things that are done according to godly wisdom. In other words, faithful service. Faithful service. Wood, hay, and stubble are bad things, false things, impure things, unrighteous things, things that are displeasing to God, and things in general that are done according to the worldly wisdom. Unfaithful service. And the true nature of each person's work will be revealed. Paul says, for the day will disclose it. Days in capital letters, the day of judgment when Christ returns. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done, I think we understand this is, a, this is an illustration just as fire uh, burns away everything, all combustible materials except for like you know steel, metal, stone, things like that. In the same way, God's judgment will reveal faithful service. Everything else will, will fall away. It, it won't stand in, in the judgment. The person themselves will be saved. They're in Christ. Of course they'll be saved. 
But these verses teach the importance of the spiritual work that is done in Christ's church. Paul is saying this matters. What what goes on in the church, anyone who's building on this foundation, anyone who's doing anything to to build up or instruct or or to teach or to to influence or to guide or to, to, to care for, anything like that, that's building materials. And it's going to be judged. It's important. So the, the first part of 10 through 15 is saying, you're, you're not going to judge these leaders, these teachers. God's going to do that perfectly in his own time. And the second part is, um, this is important because you need to be focusing on the spiritual nature of the church. Stop focusing on those things that matter to the world. Stop, stop focusing on on how, uh, how much you um, felt something when they, when, they, when they preached or taught. Instead, and focus, on, instead focus on faithful service, according to Scripture. Look for those things. Don't worry about the worldly stuff. It's just going to burn away. And then verses 16 and 17, this is serious. So he's highlighting the seriousness of worldliness. Again, I think we commented on this, on this last week. Paul devotes over a quarter of this letter on teaching, telling them to discard worldliness. It, it isn't just, a, I'm going to touch on this and then I'm going to get to the important stuff or I'm going to mention this along with all the others. This is 25% of the book. Worldliness. And, and here it is again in 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The you is plural. So he's talking to the whole church. Not an individual. God's people called out from the world to be his church. He's asking this question rhetorically. You do know that you're God's temple, right? You you know that you're God's church. And he does this so he can follow that up with with essentially saying, because you're not living like it. This isn't how God's church acts. Um, You haven't figured out that what you're doing is harming God's church. This division creating that you're doing, this this worldliness that seems to continue to manifest itself even though you you should be long past it by now, that is causing harm to Christ's church. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is a blanket statement. Yes, it's focusing on teachers here, but it includes everyone, anyone, if anyone does damage or harms Christ's church, if anyone negatively impacts or influences a, a believer in Christ's church, causes them to stumble, causes them to, to wander away, Paul says, God will destroy him. This is serious. What you're doing to these first century Christians, what you're doing is you're, you're tearing down and you're ripping apart what God has brought together and is building up. Don't blow this off, Paul's saying. God watches over and guards his church. Jesus Christ is the perfect husband and his bride is the church and he will protect her. Jesus stands as sentry over his church. And he can and does take action when he sees harm being done to her. God's temple is holy. You are that people. And then finally, verses 18 and following, no place for worldliness in the church. It's like a broken record. Let no one deceive himself into thinking that worldly ways and thinking 
and, and worldly thinking will, will, will work in the church. In other words, he's saying, don't be fooled. The, the marketplace and the business world, yeah, that's great, but that doesn't work in the church. Don't try to run the church like it's in the world. Don't try to run the church like it's part of the world. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. The, the church does not need to, to sit up and pay attention to what, what the world is doing. And, and you learn from them. No. No, that would be if we want to imitate the world, then we would do that. But that's not what our goal is here. And he includes two quotes. One from the book of Job and the other from Psalms. So the Job quote, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Now in its original context... This is from the first Eliphaz speech, if you can remember back in our journey through Job. And this is when Eliphaz was saying, well, if I were you, this is what I'd do. And then he counsels Job and says, look, you need to repent because God is merciful to those who repent. And you've obviously done something really, really wrong, so you need to repent. And then God will, will fix things and, and bring you to wholeness. At the same time, Eliphaz is saying, on the other hand, if you don't, God frustrates the, the wicked. God frustrates the devices and the plans of the wicked. He catches the wise in their craftiness. In other words, a life as was saying, and that's what Paul's, that's why Paul's using it here. He's saying, you can't outsmart God. Don't, don't think that you can continue to import this worldliness into the church and, and get away with it. God sees everything. And then the quote from the Psalms, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. In the original context, the psalmist is crying out to God and he calls him, O God, O Lord, God of vengeance. And he calls on God to, to judge and take action against the wicked who are crushing the people of God. And the psalmist asked, asks, Fools, when will you be wise? The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So both of these Old Testament quotations are a perfect fit for what Paul is trying to say here in this passage. He's saying, Hey, raw believers in Corinth, don't think you can get away with importing worldly ways and worldly thinking into the church. And if you continue to do this, remember, God sees everything. You're, you're not pulling one over on God. So stop acting like unbelievers and stop running the church like the world would run it. It doesn't work. Verse 21, so let no one boast in men. This is, again, a, a reference to their following each of these different men. Don't, don't do that. Don't boast in them. It's not about them. They're just servants. And finally, you don't need worldliness. He says, for all things are yours. All things are yours. This is actually a first century saying that would be said to communicate in, in general, just in you know, uh, secular speech, it's a first century that saying that affirms human strength, human ability to, to handle everything that comes our way, um, kind of to, to win and, and overcome at all costs based on rugged individualism and self-reliance. That is kind of like, for all things are yours, the modern equivalent would be, you've got this, or it's all you, something like that. We, we use those types of phrases, same thing. But Paul is applying it to believers, which is a little unusual. At first we thought, whoa, that, that seems like the opposite of what he would be trying to say, and you're right. Except what he means is, insofar as you are dependent upon Jesus Christ, all things are yours. 
He's not telling the Christians at, at Corinth, you got this. It's all you, man. He's not saying that. He's saying, as long as you're connected to Jesus Christ, you already have all these things. You don't need to revert to worldly ways and worldly wisdom to have all these things. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Jesus Christ is the author of life. He has achieved victory over death. He is your present, your past, your future. He, all things are in Christ. You have all these things as long as you stay connected to Jesus Christ by faith. In Christ, they have Paul, Apollos, Cephas, all these other things. If you think about it, the, the apostles, and Paul, Peter, Apollos, they belong to the church. They're servants of the church. It's not like the church belongs to them. But that's what they were claiming. I follow Paul. I belong to Paul. Paul's like, no, no, no. We belong to you. We're servants of the church. You already have all these things in Christ. Which is what the last verse states. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to God. You're one of his people. If you do not belong to Jesus Christ, you do not belong to God. You're not one of his people. He's telling them it's time to move on. If we had to summarize this, we'd say Paul is telling the believers in, the, in Corinth to move on from worldliness. Their teachers are not superstars to be idolized, but servants on the same team. And God will judge them and evaluate them and reward his servants at the right time. He warns them by way of reminder that God protects his church and he will take action against anyone who causes his church harm. And finally, he demonstrates that worldliness has no place in the church and they don't need it because they have Christ. For all these reasons, it's time to move on from worldliness. Now, even though this passage contains continued strong teaching against worldliness, I think you pick that up, it also speaks to a few other issues, and I want to address three. Number one, Christian judgment and rewards. Christian judgment and rewards. When we look at verses 10 through 15, it's not saying that as believers we need to be really careful to do enough good things in life, gold, silver, precious stones, and we need to be very careful not to do too many bad things, wood, hay, stubble, because if we fail to have good enough works, then we are going to suffer by a fiery judgment. That's not what he's saying. When it says he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, it does not mean that if we have too much sin in our life as believers, we'll have to pay for it by undergoing a fiery judgment before we're finally allowed into some kind of second-class place in heaven reserved for people who barely got in. That's not what this is about. It is talking about how church leaders in particular are to lead and teach or build upon that foundation with proper building materials. If pastors and teachers follow God's instruction, in other words, God's wisdom, and build upon the church through faithful preaching and teaching, instruction and sound doctrine, patient correction, right administration of the sacraments, biblically directed worship, prayer, spirit-enabled fellowship among believers, and in general, do God's work God's way, that's gold, silver, precious stones. That will be evaluated and judged in the last day, and God will reward that as faithfulness. 
If, however, church leaders in particular attempt to lead and teach and build upon the foundation that's been laid with worldly wisdom, if they look to the world for inspiration on what to do next, if they, fo- if they focus on numbers, nickels, and noses, if they, if they preach messages filled with personal opinions and sensationalism and shock talk, and if they spend more time talking about politics and entertainment than they do justification and sanctification, if they try to run the church like a secular business, if in general they attempt to do God's work the world's way, then Paul's saying, that's wood, hay, stubble. And that also will be evaluated on the day and judged, and it will cause that one person to suffer loss. So their work will be shown for what it is. It's either from man or from God. It'll be revealed. Now, the loss that he's talking about, at a minimum, will mean a a failure or a lack of commendation from God. We get that from chapter 4, verse 5, that Lord willing, we'll take a look at next week. Praise from God. So at a minimum, it means a loss of commendation from God. Now, in both the examples I just gave, I said church leaders in particular, because that's the context. That's true. But we also know that Ephesians teaches that God gave the church, apostles, teachers, to equip the saints for ministry. And we know that each one of us, as a believer in Christ, are called to build up the body of Christ. We're called to exercise our gifts and serve the church. So all of us, to some degree, are laying building materials down on this foundation. So this passage does apply to all of us. And we should expect our work to be evaluated on the day. If it's gold, silver, precious stones, it will be rewarded. If it's wood, hay, stubble, it will suffer loss. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that I am doing God's work God's way because I don't know exactly what a commendation from God looks like for eternity. But I know that I would much rather have that than a lack of commendation from God for eternity. We want to stay away from that. We want to do God's work God's way. So do we need to move on from anything? Have we been mesmerized by worldly ways or worldly methods? Have we been deceived into thinking that we have to do something the world's way or it won't work? Has anyone ever told you, look, you've got to, be, you've got to do this, fill in the blank, otherwise it's just not going to work. You're going to, you're going to drive people away, they're going to get turned off from Christ. Uh, nobody's going to go for that. You've got to do this. And that this is something worldly. Have we been told that in the past? I have. I've been told that. It's time to move on from that kind of thinking. If we want to hear, well done, then we need to do well. We have one shot. Just a reminder. One bullet. One chance. We have from now until we die or Christ returns. That's it. And at the end, we're going to be evaluated. No second chances, no do-overs, no extensions, no exceptions. That's it. So we've got from now until then to do well for Christ and his church. So that's number one, Christian's judgment and rewards. Number two, the peace and purity 
of Christ's church. This is back on verses 16 and 17. This is the warning. If anyone destroys God's temple, God would destroy him. Again, let's keep this in context. This is not saying that we should be careful about damaging our own physical bodies because if we do, then God will destroy us. And that's often how it's preached. I have heard these verses lifted out of context and serve uh, as the basis for an anti-smoking and anti-drinking message. It's very common. It, It happens all the time. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore, Christians, you should not engage in alcohol or tobacco because it damages the body. Watch out, woe to you, for God will destroy you if you go near these things. That's the message. That's not what these verses are about. Now, to be sure, we are to care for our physical bodies, and there are natural consequences of excessiveness and, and abusing the body, unhealthy behaviors. But we cannot take these verses as a message to believers saying, don't touch that drink or alcohol uh, or tobacco because God's going to get you. And we can't take these verses and say, well, you want to know God's position on smoking and drinking? Here's the proof text. He's against it. And it's sinful. Let me ask this question. You, You heard it preached in context. Is this verse talking about damaging your physical body? Or is this a warning against causing harm to Christ's church. It's number two. It's a warning against causing harm to Christ's church. If you have an ESV, you'll see a footnote. The Greek is plural in verses 16 and 17, meaning you all, not an individual. And as we read it, we shouldn't read it as if, oh, it's me as an individual. No, it's not you as an individual. It's talking about the church. It's saying you all are being told not to do harm to Christ's church. If anyone destroys God's temple. Paul's warning believers, any action that harms the church is considered a serious offense by God. For them, it was creating divisions. That's what they were doing. But it includes anything. Any time a member or a group of members engage in behavior that disrupts the peace and the purity of Christ's church, that's what this is addressing the peace and purity of Christ's church. Now, one of the vows we take when we become a member of of the local assembly of believers is this. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Now, when it says promise to study its purity and peace, it doesn't mean you're just going to get a hold of a book that talks about it and you're going to read up on it and memorize facts. Obviously, it's talking about working, actively working, towards promoting and protecting the purity and peace of Christ's church. That means not engaging in behavior that would harm Christ's church. It includes everything that would harm Christ's church or everything that would harm a particular individual believer in Christ's church. Uh, False doctrine, sure, that's included. Um, Creating uh, subgroups or cliques, sure, that's included kind of politicking and trying to manipulate the outcome of things. Yeah, that, that would cause harm. Um, leading a, a, a younger believer in, in ways that, that aren't true or, or influencing them on modeling behavior that, that would, would maybe cause them to fall away from Christ. Any of those things would be included. 
Now, I've been involved in a lot of churches over the years. I've been involved um, across multiple denominations, and I've seen how the sausage is made, right? So I've been on, on the inside. I've been a supervisor of a church while it was vacant. I've seen Baptist churches, Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, and then within those denominations, multiple churches at the leadership level. And here's one thing that I've learned. Not everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ works towards the peace and purity of the church. I know it's a shock. Not everyone does. I've seen lying, manipulating, politicking, intimidating, yelling, screaming, crying, seducing, arguing, organized attacks on people's characters, and that's just the things that can be mentioned from the pulpit. Yeah, it happens. And so these verses are a warning against that. All that. These verses should be like a bucket of ice-cold water dumped on our heads that that serve as a a wake-up call. If anyone destroys, it could also be translated as corrupt or spoils the local body either by causing division or by false doctrine or anything that damages or harms the church, God will destroy him. So the bottom line is this. God takes the peace and purity of his church at every local congregation level seriously. And we are to take it just as serious. If you've participated in anything like that, ask for forgiveness and then make a firm decision in your heart. It's time to move on. I'm not going to engage in any of that behavior anymore. I'm going to move on from that. It's not worth it and it's spiritually dangerous. Now that's a far cry from this passage serving as an anti-smoking and drinking verse, isn't it? That's not what it's about. We, we can turn to other places about harming your body and keeping it physically fit and what value that has, but this is not one of them. That's not what this one's about. So Christian rewards and loss, uh, evaluating also number two, peace and purity, and number three, this is the last one, relying on Jesus and not on anything else. And verses 21 and following, for all things are yours. This is kind of his, you got this challenge. But remember, only because they're in Christ. Um, do we understand that? Do we get that? What he's saying there? You, you got this. It's all you. If you're in Christ, but not on your own. If you're not in Christ, it's, it's not all you. And you definitely don't got this. If you're not in Christ. The world, life, death, present, future. If you're in Christ and all these things are secure, God's working out all things for his glory and your good. Uh, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these worldly concerns, all these things that we get so uptight over, Seek first the kingdom of God. These things God will bring into line. He'll make it happen. We don't need the world and its wisdom. And we don't need to adapt or to conform to or to accept or submit or to serve or to desire or to emulate or to utilize or to cooperate with the world and its worldly wisdom. The worldly ways. Jesus Christ is sufficient. Jesus Christ is enough. 
So we need to ask ourselves if we're, if we're leaning on ourselves at all. When we, when we hear that phrase, I've, you've got this, or I've got this, are, are we thinking by ourselves? Are we really thinking it's all me? Do we really think we can handle everything on our own? Because, I mean, don't chuckle or laugh. Some people believe this. Some people say, I'm, I'm a strong, confident, independent person, and there's nothing I can't handle. Without Christ? Can you handle death? Can you handle forgiving your own sin? No, there's a lot of things we can't handle. In fact, there's nothing we can handle on our own. If that's where we're at, or if that's ever been a part of our thinking, it's time to move on. It's time to move on from that that self-reliance thinking that we've got this, or that we can do things without Jesus Christ. Worldliness and worldly thinking is, is just going to hold us back. It's time to move on. There's no future in, in re- leaning on or remaining in worldly wisdom. And so it's time to move on. If you're a believer who's had difficulty letting go of the world, it's, it's time to move on. If you've been thinking that worldly ways are necessary or else everything's going to fall apart, it's time to move on. If you've been thinking the peace and purity of the church is, well, really not that big of a deal, then it's time to move on from that thinking. If, if you've been caught up in the, the self-reliance, prideful culture that is so much a part of the world, then it's time to move on. I hope we can allow these words of Scripture and these real warnings to sink in to, to our hearts. And of course, if you're an unbeliever this morning, it's time to move on from unbelief. That's the first thing we want to move on from. It's time to move on from unbelief and it's time to make the move to Jesus Christ. Because if you are not in Christ, you do not have the assurance of this passage. Verse 22 does not apply to you. It's it's not a a promise for you. Your, Your life, your death, your present, your future, these things are not secure in Christ if you are not in Christ. You have no hope for salvation in this life or the next outside of Jesus Christ. God will judge you according to your sins, not according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ because it's not yours. You must be in Christ. So if that's you, I urge you, it's time to move on from unbelief. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn to him. Let go of any sort of self-reliance or thinking that you've got this. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word consistently pointing us to Jesus Christ. And Father, as we make our way through these first few chapters of Corinthians, at times it almost can seem repetitive because of the the ongoing teaching against worldliness. But Father, we need to hear that. We need the repetition. We need not to simply hear one message on it and then say, okay, what's next? We need to camp out on this teaching against worldliness and allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. Father, would you give us the desire and the ability and the action steps to move on from any and all worldliness that may have taken up residence in our hearts? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.